God, we're living in difficult times. Um, no more difficult than it's been for the church for the last 2,000 years, but difficult nonetheless. Uh, times where Christians are, are more and more, Father, uh, under fire, at least verbally right now in our country, uh, for simply believing in you. And I pray that you would give us comfort. But I pray at the same time, Father, as we study these things tonight, that you would also stir in us a desire to tell more of the world about you. And that we wouldn't be cowed, and that we wouldn't shrink back, and that we wouldn't be concerned about offending, but Lord, that we would, knowing, knowing Lord, that judgment is coming on this world, that we would be more vocal than ever before, with the name of Jesus on our lips, and the gospel message in our hearts, and the changed lives that you've wrought in all of us, Father, that we would have those to present to the world, and that we would pray always that yet another person would find Jesus and be saved. God, there is so little that truly matters in this world right now. So little that is important. As you said, Jesus, to Mary, as you sat in their house, really only one thing is important. And we, Father, tonight want to choose that one thing. Uh, the thing that matters. And that is coming into relationship with you. Father, draw us closer to you tonight. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. This is one of those, these two chapters are, are uh, one of those just surprise study times for me. As I, as I go through week to week, there are, it's, it's always wonderful, I always love it, I'm always amazed at the things that are in God's Word. But oftentimes, I'll find myself surprised as I was this time around, because we're just in the middle of the plagues, and I thought, okay, we're going to deal with some more plagues. We're just going to read through and deal with the plagues, and we'll try and pull some stuff out and get through the plagues and get on to other things. And there's some stuff in here that's just absolutely amazing. To the point that as I was finishing up this morning, I, I couldn't wait. It, the day was too long to, to get here and, and be with you all tonight. But let's start in Exodus chapter 8. We'll start in verse 1. Now we did the first 10 verses on Sunday. I want to go back, read through those, and just point out a couple things that we missed on Sunday. Exodus chapter 8 verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. So the frogs will come up on you and your people and all your servants. And then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land. Now one brother said on Sunday morning, he said, you didn't say anything about the magicians making frogs come up too, that they did the same thing with their magical abilities. You didn't mention that. And, and I didn't because the week before on Wednesday night, we talked about the magicians. We talked about how they made their staff turn into serpents or crocodiles, as the word is more likely translated, that they did the same thing, but Aaron's staff ate up theirs. And then we said that, that the magicians did the same thing with the blood, that all the, the Nile was turned into blood and the rivers and the streams and everything became blood. 
And so the magicians did the same thing. And, and it's just them doing their same old tricks. Verse 7, that they made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. I think the only thing we really need to recognize about the magicians here is that all they do is make things worse. They could make things better. Why not use your magical ability, your spiritual ability, they were magicians, they were priests, in the temples of Egypt. Why not use your so-called power, make the frogs go away if you're so powerful? Why not clean up the Nile if you're so powerful? Why not make Aaron's rod disappear if you're so powerful? They can't do that. All they can do is make things worse. And as we talked about last week, that's what Satan does. He comes along, he imitates, he mimics, he mocks God. He tries to do things like God, but in essence, all he ends up doing is making things worse. And that's what the magicians are doing. They're just creating more frogs, more havoc, and that's not any good for anybody. Well, verse 8, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he remove the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go, that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, The honor is yours to tell me, when shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses, that they may be left only in the Nile? And then he said, and this is still amazing to me, tomorrow. Not today, not immediately, not get rid of the frogs now, I'm tired of them, but I'd like one more night with the frogs. So he said, may it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Now Sunday we talked about how these frogs are are a perfect picture of how sin works. That like the frogs, sin robs me of my rest, that it ruins my appetite, it ravages my relationships, and sin only hardens my heart against the Lord. And after the frogs were taken out, verse 11, they will depart from you and your houses and your servants and the, and the Nile, and they will be left only in the Nile. Well, it tells us down in verse 15, actually, that Pharaoh saw there was relief and he hardened his heart again. So there were a perfect picture there of how sin works, and that, that recording that tape will be available if you haven't heard it and you'd like to study the frogs a little more closely. However, there are three truths that I discovered this week in going back over this that we didn't talk about on Sunday regarding the frogs and regarding sin. And the first truth is this. If you're taking notes, you might just jot down the repentance of sin. The repentance of sin. This this blew my mind, and it's just the way the Bible works, but the word frog in the Bible. I finally went back and looked it up, just out of curiosity. What does this word actually mean? How is it pronounced, and what does it mean? The word in the Hebrew is sephardeia. Sephardeia. And it means literally to depart early, to withdraw, or to turn. Sephardea. Now I don't know why, and and scholars in in trying to explain this do not know why frogs, that word sephardea, means to depart early or to turn. But it's perfect, isn't it? Because what is the biblical word for turning? Repent. And it's the one thing that Pharaoh needed to do was repent of his sin. God graciously affords Pharaoh every opportunity to depart early, to repent early of his sin, not to wait all the way through the plagues. Part of what's happening with these ten plagues, and I fully believe this, if at the third plague Pharaoh had actually repented and let the people go, the plagues would have stopped. God is gracious in that he continues to give warning to Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. Give them opportunity to sephardea, to be like the frogs, to depart early, to withdraw, to turn, to repent. Moses raises the red flag, but what does Pharaoh do? He refuses. Not going to do it. 
Now gang, as we try to grapple with the greatness of grace, as we try to understand the depth of God's mercy, we may overlook something regarding sin and repentance that just kind of spun me around this week, and I never really thought of it this way before. Perhaps you have. We thank God often that we can repent and turn back to Him after we sin. But you ever think about the fact that we can repent before we sin? That we can actually repent prior to sin. That it doesn't take sin to have repentance. And I'm not talking about saying, God forgive me for what I'm about to do. I've got this great sin idea in my head and I just want to know that I'm covered. So I'm going to ask for forgiveness first, go sin, and then come back and we'll be okay. Is that right? That's not what I'm talking about. But just as with Pharaoh... The Lord gives us red flags, warnings, and ample opportunity to turn before we act. To repent before we sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, the field is level at the foot of the cross. It's common. By the way, just a side note, if we really understood that, we would be a whole lot more forgiving of other people, wouldn't we? A whole lot less judgmental if we recognize, hey, we're all sinners. We all blow it. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. We also wouldn't feel so bad about ourselves when we do sin. We wouldn't get ourselves into the spirals where we're just like, I'm the worst person in the world. No, you're not. You're a person in the world like everybody else. You're a sinner like everybody else. But Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 10.13. He says, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. In other words, there is no temptation that you have to succumb to. With every temptation that comes along, God is right there providing a way of escape, a way of pre-repentance. That we can repent ahead of time. The biblical advice to us when sin approaches is simply this. Hop away. Hop away ahead of a time. But depart early. Flee. Get out of there. 1 Corinthians 6.18 tells us. Paul says, flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10.14. He says, flee from idolatry. 1 Timothy 6.11. Flee from these things. Referring there specifically to the love of money. The root of all evil. And 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Paul says to Timothy, Flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness. These all indicate this idea of fleeing, repenting before sin. Repent before you sin. Depart early. Be on board with those people who say, Instead of waiting around until I'm on the verge of sin, and then I sin, and then I've got to ask for forgiveness, then I've got to repent. Repent ahead of time. Right now. Tonight. Go home and repent. To the Lord, that simply means turn to Him. Depart early from the ways of the world and head into righteousness. Paul says, pursue righteousness. Now the second thing to be aware of, along with this sephardea of the frogs, is the residue, the residue of sin. Look at verse 11. The frogs, Moses is saying, will depart from you and from your houses from your servants and your people, and they will be left only in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, the courts, and the fields. So they piled them in heaps, and the land became foul. Think about the land of Egypt after the frogs all passed away. 
Have you smelled a dead frog before? I mean, it's nasty. But pile them up in heaps all across the land, and it's foul. And that tells us something and explains to us something I believe about sin, that it leaves a residue. Gang, we can be forgiven of sin. As a matter of fact, Jesus' death on the cross forgives me of past sin, present sin, future sin, even things I haven't done yet. I have forgiveness for in the grace of God, which is mind-boggling. But that doesn't mean there's not going to be a stink. I may be forgiven, but I'm also going to have to deal with the residue of that. Though the land is clear of frogs, the stench is still there. And we might, might say sometimes, why if I'm forgiven? Why if there's grace, do I still have to deal with the pain of past choices? Why can't I be free of that? And the answer is simple, because sin tends to foul up the landscape. That even though we have grace and forgiveness and salvation to look forward to, past sins will bother me today and in the future. It's the residue of sin. Back in the 80s, when uh, AIDS first really came on the scene into public awareness, there were some TV evangelists and some pastors who came out saying AIDS is God's judgment on the homosexual community. And it was not really taken real well, real well by the homosexual community or by the, the media at large that they would say such a thing. How, how judgmental can you be that AIDS is God's judgment on people? The reality is I don't believe AIDS was God's punishment for homosexuality. I believe AIDS was sin's punishment for homosexuality. Listen to what the Bible says here. Paul says in Romans 1.26 that God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts. Now we've read that before, but listen to this. Paul says, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now this is not to say that God is standing up there hammering every time we sin. The reality is, and God knows this, and it's a spiritual truth, when we sin, we get penalized by sin. Because along with sin comes all the things that God does not want for us. He doesn't want us to have those experiences, that pain that comes, that punishment that comes directly with sin. God wants to forgive, but oftentimes though we are forgiven, the punishment of sin itself still digs at us. It still stinks. It comes with its own penalties. And there are sins which we commit which, which may continue to rob us of sleep from time to time. May ruin our appetites from time to time. Ravage relationships long after we've received pardon for those sins. And you might say, well, great. So sin follows up my landscape. What hope do I have? Are you telling me that certain sins in my life are going to follow me my entire life? Yeah. Yeah, I am. There are things that each of us have done that we will never forget, at least not until a certain time. And this is the third thing to jot down, is the redemption from sin. The redemption from sin. Romans 8.22, Paul says, We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The whole creation, that's all of us, gang. And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the spirits, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Now, gang, if, if everything was hunky dory, if it was all roses along the path toward the toward eternity and toward its redemption, if right now everything was great in the Christian life, why would we groan? But the Bible says, and I think we 
agree in our spirits that we do groan within ourselves. Paul says, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we've been saved, but the hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Gang, this is what I want you to understand about this idea of redemption. God calls us, the Bible calls us to focus on redemption, not relief. And there's a big difference between the two. And the church, I'm afraid, has gotten caught up preaching relief as opposed to redemption. They are different. I may not experience relief from past sin in my life. I may have to deal with choices I've made my whole life, and I may not feel relief from that. But the Bible says relief's not the issue. Redemption is. And that's what you look toward, what you look forward to. Look at Pharaoh, verse 15. When Pharaoh saw that there was relief... He hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Relief is not always what we need. Relief can be dangerous because relief itself can harden our hearts to the Lord. If God took away some of that pain, some of that groaning, some of that anguish that we experience from past sins, guess what we would do as human beings? The same thing as Pharaoh. I have relief. It's all taken care of. It's a done deal. I don't need God anymore. I don't have to do what he says. Obedience? Why? I've got my relief. We don't need relief. We need redemption. We need redemption. And so my encouragement is to you, if you, like me, are dealing with some past sin, and every now and then it just kind of crops up and you, you groan about it. If something's bugging you, if there is maybe even physical malady because of past choices you've made, understand you may not get relief in this life, but that's not what we're looking forward to. We're looking to, toward the imminent redemption that comes with Jesus. Well, verse 16 going on. Verse 16 tells us that then Aaron, uh, the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth that it may become gnats through all the land of Egypt. And they did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats. Some translations say lice on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats through all the land of Egypt. That's a lot of dust, folks. It's a lot of gnats. Now the word for gnat here is cane, which means to fasten. To fasten. Named because these particular teeny tiny microscopic bugs, when they got on you, fastened onto you. In other words, they took a bite out of you. So these gnats that were everywhere and were in their faces and on their arms and on their bodies were biting at the same time. Philo wrote that this was a species of gnat so small they're hardly even visible to the eye, but that they have a sting which caused a painful irritation of the skin and they numbered like the dust of Egypt. This was awful. You know, when you really take time to step back and study these plagues, you realize this was no game. This was no picnic. These weren't just little things that, oh, okay, that was bad and they got over it. Oh, that was bad and they got over it. This was horrid. And these gnats were everywhere. Man, I, I don't know. Are, are you like me, though, when you think about gnats or specifically lice? When someone even says the word lice, lice, what do you do? <laughs> A few minutes later you go <laughs> We've experienced the plague of lice Three times in our household I'm not going to tell you which child brought it home Because she'd be very upset if I mentioned her name And we found 
found out that life is not a matter of being a dirty child because she was clean. The hair was actually light, light cleaner hair. But if you've ever had to deal with lice, it's a pain to get rid of them. They're, they're, they're everywhere. And when you try, you've got to wash all the clothes. And everybody in the house has to use that red shampoo, which is not good. And we had to go, you have to take all the stuffed animals, put them in bags, bag them up, take them out to the garage. So if there's any lice that got under the stuffed animals, they die out. And, you got, and I've watched my wife deal with this three times. And I was there, you know, encouraging her on. Bag the, bag the animals, you know. Wash the hair. Good job, Cheryl. You know, as I'm flipping between Fox News and MSN. Anyway, so we've dealt with this. It's nothing like that. These gnats, these gnats were awful. The very dust of the desert itself became gnats. And by the way, we have yet another Egyptian god being slammed here. The Egyptian god Set. Set, S-E-T, the god of the desert. The god who has control over the sandstorms, over the dust of the land, apparently had no control over the dust becoming gnats. But it's interesting that this attack was also directed at the Egyptian priesthood themselves directly. How so? Herodotus tells us that the priests, every third day, would, quote, shave their bodies entirely to protect them from the curse of lice, gnats. Remember Yule Brenner and the Ten Commandments? Bald head and everything. Well, that was typical, actually, of the priests. Because they had to be clean to perform their priestly, paganistic duties in the temple. And so every third day, they shaved their entire bodies head to toe so that they wouldn't have gnats. <laughs> and here come the gnats all over their bodies. And so effectively, God shut down pagan worship during this plague. They couldn't even do what they normally did in the temple. I wrote this down. The Lord polluted the pagan priests with pesky, painful gnats. <laughs> Say that three times fast. But watch this as we read on. This gets more interesting. The magicians, verse 18, tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. And then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said, gang, though Pharaoh is still hard, the priests have now come around. The priests are now saying to Pharaoh, this God is God. This is the finger of God. This is it, right? We cannot deal with this. We cannot fight this. And by the way, this is the famous last words of the magicians. You'll see them one more time, but they're not going to say anything else. This is it. Their last words, the last words recorded out of their mouths, these famous magic magicians of Egypt, this is the finger of God. In essence, denouncing their own gods is capable of fighting this one true God. The finger of God. It's funny, the magicians could change water to blood. And they could invite frogs up on the land. They could change a staff into a serpent slash crocodile. But they couldn't do something as seemingly insignificant as making gnats appear. Little gnats. They couldn't do it. Why? Because unlike the serpent... And unlike the blood, and unlike the frogs, this particular plague is creative. It's creative. The Egyptian magicians, think about this, they could manipulate, demonically I believe, things already created. They could take the water and somehow turn it into blood. They could cause the frogs already created to come up out of the Nile. They could take a stick already created and make something out of it, but they couldn't create something from nothing. Only God can do that. Only God could, could take the dust, the dust of the ground, and turn it into a living being. As we saw in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. 
And that word created, you Bible students, you may recall this, is bara. The word means something from nothing. Only God can create something from nothing. Satan can't do it. The magicians of Egypt can't do it. Isaiah 65, 17 says, For behold, I create, bara, something from nothing, new heavens and a new earth, which we've studied before. That means that the new heaven and new earth that are coming are not going to be reformations of the old one. It's not going to be taking the one that's currently here and just kind of gussying it up to be a new earth. No, it's going to be a brand new earth, something from nothing, completely new, and it's going to boggle our minds. But only God, only God can create something from nothing. And so the magicians cry out, the finger of God! The finger of God! Interesting phrase, the finger of God. It's used in the Bible and other places as well. At Mount Sinai, the finger of God produced the law. Exodus 31.18 tells us, When he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, God gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony. Tablets of stone written by the finger of God. Can you even imagine what that was like to be Moses on Sinai and watching God's finger write the Ten Commandments? Amazing. The finger of God produced the law. Uh, Secondly, there was a feast going on. Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5 tells us about a guy named Belshazzar. Now Belshazzar is the probably grandson or, or nephew of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is off the scene at this point, And Belshazzar's father is supposedly controlling Babylon, but he's left. He's off somewhere else. And he's left control of Babylon to Belshazzar. And Belshazzar, acting as king, is an idiot. He's a fool. And he's in the, in the um, palace of Babylon. And he's having a big feast. A big party's going on there. And he says, hey, we're having a good time drinking the wine and getting smashed here. Let's go get all the temple instruments from those Hebrews that we have in captivity here. Let's get the bowls that belong in their temples. Bring those in. Let's drink out of those. That was the wrong move. We're told in Daniel chapter 5, starting around verse 5, that suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. And then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, which means he wet his pants. That's what that means, gang. The Bible tells it like it is. And his knees began knocking together. He freaked out. This hand shows up and this finger starts writing on the wall. And he just loses it. All of it. And they looked up there and there were letters written. And he didn't understand them. The letters were Mene Mene Tekel Ufarsan. And he looked and no one could translate that. And they brought in all the people who were supposed to be wise men of the kingdom. No one could translate that. And someone said, you know, there was a guy. There was a guy named Daniel. I think he knows what to do. He, he, could, he told Nebuchadnezzar dreams. Let's bring him in. So they bring in Daniel. And they say, hey, can you tell us what this means? Oh, he does. Verse 25 of Daniel 5. He says, now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel ufarsen. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene means... God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. The word mene means numbered. And tekel, tekel, Daniel says, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Tekel means weighed. You've been weighed, Belshazzar, and you are deficient. And Perez, 
Perez means, or Eupharsin, same word, different uh, form of the word. Your kingdom, Daniel says, has been divided. That's what Perez means. And given over to the Medes and the Persians. And that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. The finger of God. The finger of God pronouncing the law. Proclaiming the law at Sinai. Well, now the finger of God pronounces judgment on Belshazzar and on Babylon and Babylon that night was taken over by the Medes and the Persians and that is a historical story that is amazing in and of itself we don't have time for it tonight but the third time the third time the finger of God shows up it was in the temple in Jerusalem and Jesus was there and the finger of God did a shocking thing Jesus is teaching in the temple courts and all of a sudden out of nowhere come a group of the Pharisees who have found a woman caught in adultery. Remember the story? John chapter 8. And they throw her down on the ground in front of them and say, we just caught this woman in the act. What are you going to do about it, Jesus? The law said we should stone her. I love this. Let me just read it to you. John 8 verse 6. Jesus stooped down with his finger. With his finger. Finger of God. And he wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and he said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and he wrote on the dust, the finger of God. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. And the woman where she was in the center of the court, and straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Now Bible teachers over the years have wondered what it was that Jesus wrote with his finger. It's interesting, in the Greek there, the word where it says he wrote on the ground, it's katagrapho, which literally means he wrote against. Writing against. And there are some, because of that phraseology, who think maybe what he was writing was the sins of all the Pharisees as they watched and looked down and thought, oh, that's me. Okay, I'm out of here. The finger of God. The finger of God pronounced the law at Sinai. Pronounced judgment on Babylon, but provided grace in the temple court. And who can figure out the finger of God? Let me ask you, which you desire to have pointed your way? The finger of law? The finger of judgment? Or the finger of grace? See, the fingers of God on both hands were ultimately parted by nails and stapled to a wooden cross. That law and judgment could be replaced by grace and forgiveness. Verse 20. Now the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you do not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies also the ground on which they dwell. Now we might think that's not as bad as the gnats. And you couldn't even hardly see them. They were like the dust of the earth everywhere. They're biting, causing painful irritation. So the flies come along and you might think, well, they're bothersome, but not so bad. (laughs) Think again. These flies were not just buzzing. They were wreaking havoc in Egypt. Verse 24 tells us they were literally a heavy or oppressive swarm. Check this out. The flies... 
The flies may have been an attack on either the god Re, which was a prominent Egyptian deity, or the god, and this is an interesting name, Uachit. Uachit, who was a god of flies, or maybe this pronouncement was against both of them, but listen, these flies... These flies in Egypt were bad news. If they were the dog flies of Egypt, they gave a particularly painful bite. Or possibly they were another kind of fly present in Egypt today, which lay their eggs on people's skin as they sleep. That'd be nice. <laughs> Psalm 78:45 tells us that he sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them. Eating the land, eating the flesh of the people. These flies were bad news. Kyle and Delitz in their commentary in the Old Testament wrote that swarms of flies indicates, quote, diverse sorts of flies, including but not limited to the gadfly, the cockroach, the Egyptian beetle, for all of these are mentioned by various writers and all of these could fly. A swarm, a massive swarm of diverse flies. It could have been all kinds of flying insects all over the land. Needless to say, by now, the Egyptian people were getting a little bugged. <laughs> now, why, why wouldn't the Egyptians just assume either Re or Uachit, these two gods, why wouldn't you assume these gods sent the flies? After all, Uachit was god of the flies, lord of the flies. Why wouldn't you think that he sent the flies? It, it's him. It's got to be one of our gods. Maybe they're upset with us, and maybe that's why they're sending the flies. Why not assume that? Because something very different happens beginning with this play, verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people are living, so that no swarms of flies will be there, in order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will occur. And the Lord did so. And there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and the houses of his servants, and the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies in all the land of Egypt. All the land that is except Goshen. Flies were everywhere else. But as if there was an invisible force field, no flies in Goshen. And God says, I'm dividing out my people here and now. Now this is interesting to me because that means up to this point Israel was going through the plagues with Egypt. Going through this tribulation of sorts. Just like they will in the end times. In the last days, during that tribulation that we talked a lot about last week, in comparison with the plague, very similar situations. The, the Jews here, the Hebrews, are going through at least the first three of these plagues before finally God begins to protect them, to draw a dividing line and say, now, from here on out, they will not be affected. But they were affected by the blood of the Nile. They were afflect, affected by the, by the frogs. They were affected even by the singing, biting gnats, but not by the flies. And from here on out, they are protected. And so again, it will be in the tribulation as well. And you may want to read Revelation chapter 12 where it describes how midway through the tribulation, God pulls his people out of Jerusalem, out to a safe place, a place in the wilderness where they are protected for the last 1260 days of the tribulation. That is three and a half years. But why is it with this particular plague that Israel is distinct? Why now? And why with the flies? Is there something to that? And I believe there is, or I probably wouldn't be asking the question. Now this is my opinion, and I'm just going to throw it out there for your consideration tonight, but there may be a global historical statement here being made by God. A statement bigger 
or in addition to the national local one. He's making a statement to Egypt. And he's making a statement to the people living in the world at that time. But I think the statement must may be much, much bigger. Listen to this verse, Mark chapter 3, verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. Okay, so the Jews understood that Beelzebul was the ruler of the demons. Do you know what Beelzebul means? Lord of the flies. Lord of the flies. Beelzebul is a name for Satan that means Lord of the Flies. And what has Satan's game plan been throughout all of history? It's been to take down Israel, folks. You see, if I can take out Israel, Satan would say, no Israel, no Messiah. No Israel, no Christ. If Israel had been destroyed, as we see Satan attempting to do throughout Scripture, before Jesus came on the scene, if Israel had been wiped out, guess what? No Jesus. Because Jesus was coming through the line of Israel. And Satan, in his twisted thinking, assumes that if he can destroy Israel, he can destroy Christ. Or the coming of Christ. No Israel, he thinks, no salvation. Destroy Israel, and you take out the plan. No Israel, no fulfillment of God's promises. Which continues even today. You wonder why after Christ does Satan still go after Israel? Because God still has promises for Israel. Still has plans for them. And if those plans get knocked off, then suddenly we realize something. Oh, God didn't fulfill what he said he was going to fulfill. Israel has to be a a key player because God made promises, promises and covenants to them that cannot and will not be broken. So the Lord of the flies, Satan, Beelzebul, he tries to take out God's people and it's right here with the plague of the flies. The plague of the flies that God separates his people. And as if he's saying to Satan himself, You can't touch this. You can't get your hand on my people, Lord of the Flies. Oh, you may reign and do destruction in the world, but my people are distinct. I will protect my people, Israel. You will not overcome my people or my perfect son or my plans. And with this plague, God swats the Lord of the Flies. So so Pharaoh regroups, as Satan does. And decides to compromise. <laughs> Verse 25. I laugh at these two when I'm sitting home. Oh, that's funny. That's good. Verse 25. Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. Within the land. That's not what they asked for. We need to go three days over into the wilderness to, to sacrifice to our God and to worship. That's what they asked. No, no. You can go sacrifice to your God within the land. Hey, Worship your God. But stay in Egypt. And praise your Lord. That's fine. Just don't go out from us. That, folks, is the compromise of Satan. That's what he wants even today. Go ahead. Worship your God, but stay in the world. Be an evangelical, but enjoy our entertainment. Be a Christian, but conform to the way of the world. Think and act and look like we do. Don't let your cause cause you to be different. Be like us. I've been amazed. Man, the fallout after this election has been just unbelievable. Have you been watching and listening to the things being said against evangelical Christianity? It is unbelievable how vocal all of a sudden it's just like it's almost as if Satan is throwing up. 
Because we're hearing things that are being said that we always kind of knew were under the surface, but now are just coming out. It's those evangelicals. It's their agenda. It's their problem. I saw in the news just last week, and this bothered me almost more than anything else. One of the commentators was saying, oh, come on, I know Christians who go to church on Sunday, and then, you know, they love to drink with the boys on Friday night. They're no different than we are. And I went, that's worse. (laughs) That's a worse commentary than anything that's being said about how these Christians are taking our country backward. Just be like us. Have your meet in that barn. That's cool. That's cool. You know, church in the barn. That's pretty cool. You got your worship thing, your little teaching thing, and that's great. But man, when you leave, come on back. Worship your God within Egypt. But the Holy Spirit says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And folks, it's not just for the church. It's not just that the church needs to learn to stop looking like the world and start acting like the church. Oh, that's true. But you and I need to realize God is calling us to be distinct. That He has drawn a dividing line between Egypt and Goshen and He wants His people in Goshen. Ultimately, He wants to pull His people out completely. But for now, He wants you to look different. Someone should look at your life and go, Are you a Christian? Is that what's going on with you? Because you don't watch what I watch. And you don't talk like I talk. And you don't act like I act. And it's bugging me. Well, you're bugged because you're following the Lord of the Flies. That's the issue there. God calls His people out of Egypt. That both His people and Egypt, check that, both His people and Egypt might see the difference between life with Him and life without Him in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Interesting wording. Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Not in your attitude. Not in your personal private prayer closet. In your behavior. Be holy. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And a couple of people, a couple of close friends this week, who talked to me about trying to reach friends and family with the message of Jesus. That it's difficult. It's hard. Especially when you, you plan for something you're gonna, you know you're going to be with this particular family member or this certain friend. And you're looking forward to that time with them and you're thinking as you're heading to be with them now is the time they need to hear about Christ. They're not, they need to hear about Jesus. And so you go with that thought in your mind and that intention and then you get with them and it's just it's not working. You know, there's not an opportunity. There's not a chance to speak and, and say, look, i got to tell you about this. I want to encourage you with this thought. And especially my two friends who are both here tonight. <laughs> Our best tool of evangelism, number one best tool we have, is the change that Jesus has made in us. It is the difference in how we live. It's the distinctiveness of our lifestyle. That changes lives. And people will look at that, see that, and maybe not say a word about it, but you bet your boots it affects the way they look at you and it affects the way they think about God. Man, he's just not the way he used to be. Wow, she just doesn't act the way she used to act. I don't understand what makes her so distinct. 
is Jesus in us. And if we are living out that way, it's like Francis of Assisi said, it's a great quote you've probably heard before, preach the gospel constantly and when necessary use words. Because it's our very behavior, it's our lifestyle, it's who we are. That affects lives. Well, verse 26, let's go on. But Moses said, it's not right to do so, that is to sacrifice within the land. For we will sacrifice to the Lord our God what is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice what is an abomination to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not then stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as He commands us. And you may remember that the people of Israel were already an abomination to the Egyptians because they were a shepherding people. And Genesis tells us that shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. When Joseph's family, when Israel finally moved down on into Egypt, that was a concern. There'll be an abomination there. No one wanted to be shepherds, so the Israelites come in as the shepherds. Well, now the shepherds want to go out and sacrifice lambs to their God. And Moses says, if we do that in the land, it is an abomination and they will try to stone us. In the same way, Christians are increasingly an abomination in the eyes of the world, and especially in our country, as we were just talking about. It's one of the hottest post-election issues going on right now, and that's the effect, the influence many see as negative of the evangelical Christian community. You're taking us backwards. I heard an article this last week, and this is stunning, where a writer in the Washington Post, I believe it was, an editorial, actually compared evangelical Christianity to radical, militant, Islamic jihad. That's how rancorous it's becoming. The vitriol out there is absolutely stunning. A group of people who, according to critics, are trying to take America backwards. Back to the Stone Age. Back to uh, the way we used to... Man, we're an advanced people and you're trying to pull us back. And gang, as we move into these last days, like Moses and the people of Israel, we will experience more and more opposition. We will be called bigoted. We will be called narrow-minded, and we will be called intolerant, and you may already have been called that, but let me tell you why. It's because we're willing to talk about sin. It's because we know what sin is. It's because we don't back down and say, oh, it's, it's not sin, actually it's just reproductive rights. No, 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 it's just an alternative lifestyle. No, it's medical research. Again, there were things on the ballot this time around that depending on which way it went would go the direction of sin. Which is why so many evangelical Christians did stand up in this past election. And you know what? I don't think it had so much to do with the man, Carrier Bush. I mean, sure, there were different things that you looked at with each one of them and made decisions about based on character and, and trustworthiness and all that. But the issues drove, drove this election. And as relieved as I was to see evangelical Christians come out and vote in droves, and they did this time around, I am equally blown away, as I just said, by the rancor against Christians in America today. Think about this, though. It makes sense. The Israelites are going out to sacrifice to their God. A lamb is going to be slaughtered as a propitiation for sin. It was an abomination to Egypt now, and it's an abomination to the world today that a lamb would have to be slaughtered for my sin. 
that someone would have to die a cruel death. Come on, how is that fair? Romans 9.33 As it is written, Behold, I will lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Speaking of Jesus, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 Paul said, We preach Christ crucified, crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And Jesus says in Matthew 11:6, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, May it never be that I would boast, Paul says, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the Lord. Pharaoh wants Israel to stay in Egypt, to be of Egypt. But Moses recognizes the distinction between godly living and Egyptian living. In the same way, the church must get out from the weight of the world and be who and what God has called us to be, distinctly different. Well, going on in verse 28, Pharaoh said, I will let you go, that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away. Make supplication for me. And then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you. And I shall make supplication to the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only do not let Pharaoh deal deceitfully again in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Pharaoh is still trying to manipulate the situation. You can go. It's not far. Stay close by. And Moses says, No, I am going out from you. Saying, I think this is a key to successful Christian living. Not to see how close we can be to the world, but to see how close we can get to the Lord. And the truth is, the closer we get to the Lord, the more distinctive we become in the world, the more different we become, and the further away from the world we get. It is a natural progression. Verse 30, reading on. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and made supplication to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock which are in the field. On the horses, and on the donkeys, and on the camels, and on the herds, and on all the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction, here we go again, between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. The Lord set a definite time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And so the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died, but of the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. And Pharaoh said, Behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Now the Lord is impacting Egyptian economy. All of the livestock will die. And it's the fifth plague. We're five down. Five more to go. And think about how bad it's been so far. Well, the Egyptian god Apis, A-P-I-S, the black bull, couldn't save the livestock. And so he was put down. And students of prophecy, you may want to note this, the tribulation period will also see a devastation of economy. 
Revelation chapter 18 talks of the fall of Babylon. Talks of weeping merchants who watch as Babylon, as this commercial center of Antichrist's kingdom, as this place of massive wealth and commerce and trade that is described in detail in Revelation chapter 18. They watch from their ships at a distance as Babylon falls in one hour. Right now, Fallujah is 70% contained, apparently, after three days of fighting. And more fighting to come to try and get rid of the insurgents. In one hour, commercial Babylon destroyed. The economy of the world devastated. Now, I want you to notice something here. And again, if you take notes, you might want to write these things down. There's a progression that goes on in the plagues here. And I haven't mentioned it before, but it's a good time to stop and look at this. It's actually divided up into three segments, not including the tenth plague, which stands alone. That's one all by itself. But three different segments. The first segment, the plague one through three, the first three plagues, the blood, the frogs, and the gnats, are an attack on the pleasure of Egypt. On the pleasure, on their comfort. It's it's awful, uncomfortable, they're being bitten, they've got these frogs everywhere. It's just really uncomfortable. The second three plagues, plagues 4, 5, and 6, are an attack on the possessions of Egypt. Flies devastating the land. Livestock dying. And the next one, which we'll look at, boils on all the people and on the animals that are left after the livestock die. You might say, well, wait a minute, Rick. I bought all the livestock were killed. No, verse 3 tells us the pestilence is on the livestock which are in the field. Which means livestock that are not in the field, maybe those who are brought inside, may well have been protected. Because there is livestock to receive boils in the next plague. But the fourth through the sixth plagues, an attack on the, attack on the possessions of Egypt. The seventh through the ninth plague, that's hail, locusts, and darkness, is now an attack directly on the people of Egypt. Because beginning with the hailstones that will fall, people begin to die. Death begins to be pervasive in the last three attacks. What you see here is a progression in the plagues. It is a stepping up. It starts bad, it gets worse, and it gets worse yet. And then the tenth plague is an attack on the progeny of Egypt with the death of the firstborn. To take out the progeny. So here again are the, is the progression. Plagues 1 through 3, an attack on the pleasure of Egypt. Plagues 4, 5, and 6, an attack on the possessions of Egypt. Plague 7, 8, and 9, an attack on the people themselves of Egypt. And plague number 10, an attack on the progeny of Egypt. And interestingly, woven throughout these plagues, as will be woven throughout the tribulation period, are constant warnings from God. Red flags. Voices calling out, repent, turn, obey the Lord, do as the Lord says. Well, verse 8 tells us, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron... Take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln. That's literally the kiln. And there's an important distinction there. Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast through all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln or the furnace and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it toward the sky and it became boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. Verse 11 tells us the magicians or priests could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils were on the magicians as well as on the Egyptians. God is continuing to shut down the pagan worship. 
And verse 12 says, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. This time it is the Lord hardening his heart. And he did not listen to them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. God says, Take handfuls of ashes out of the furnace or the kiln. And again, it's not a kiln, it's the kiln. Why is that important? Because there was a furnace in Egypt at the time. A specific furnace. And I believe, personally, this is the furnace that Moses and Aaron were sent to to take the dust out of. This furnace was a crematorium of sorts. It was actually a furnace to the Egyptian god Typhoon. Interesting name. The god Typhoon. Typhoon was a god who was supposed to keep the people from getting sicknesses and epidemics and boils, things of this nature. He was supposed to protect the people and the health of the Egyptians. But to do so, he required sacrifice. Human sacrifice. And so God would send Moses and Aaron to the furnace where they would take handfuls of soot directly that had been the leftover of sacrifice to Typhoon, throwing it on the air, and the exact result is that which Typhoon himself, as a god, so-called, was supposed to protect against, but could not do it. By the way, the Lord said to the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 15.22, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed better than the fat of rams. What the Lord desires is obedience. Let my people go. That's what I'm asking you to do. Obey me. And so Moses and Aaron gathered these ashes from the furnace, threw them into the air, and another Egyptian god was taken down. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Verse 14, From this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. In other words, it's all about God. And it is not about any of us. It is all only about the Lord. And verse 15, for by, if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have then been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. And verse 17, still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. And the Apostle Paul picks up right on verse 16 in Romans chapter 9. And he declares that God's supremacy, his sovereignty, is what it's all about. Listen to this verse, Romans 9, 17. For the scripture says, scripture says to Pharaoh, Hi, Annie, how you doing? <laughs> scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So Paul is now quoting Exodus 8, or 9, verse 16. And Paul says, So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. And that's not fair. That's just not fair. How can God have mercy on some and harden others? That's not fair. And Paul would say, well, it doesn't really matter if you think it's fair or not. Because it's not about you. Verse 17 of Romans chapter 9, Paul goes on, says, uh, or verse 19, sorry, he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? 
But on the contrary, Paul says, Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Pharaoh came into the world for such a time as this. God called Pharaoh to it. Now granted, Pharaoh was hardening his heart. Pharaoh was acting on the choices that he had made and God knew he would. But Pharaoh was a chosen instrument of God in the same way that Judas was. In the same way that Pilate was. People at particular times in history who God chose to be there, even to be in opposition to him. And we say, I don't understand that. I don't get that. How does that work with grace and mercy and free will and all of that? And the bottom line is, I don't know. I have no idea. And we cannot fully understand God's ways. We know that He doesn't want anyone to perish. We know that. We know that He wants all people to find salvation. We know that that's God's heart and His desire. But He will also do whatever He needs to do to accomplish His will. He is going to do it. And my opinion means very little in the grand scheme. But I do know this. Proverbs 1.7 The fear The fear of the Lord And we try to soften that word It's awe It's respect No, the fear of the Lord Is the beginning of knowledge That's where it starts When we can actually step back for a moment And say God I'm afraid Now there are times when my kids fear me And he doesn't but there are times when my kids will be afraid because I have raised my voice. I'm angry. Dad is standing. You know, have you seen The Lord of the Rings? In the very first movie, there's a scene where Gandalf goes into uh, Bilbo's house and he's trying to get the ring from Bilbo. And if you've watched it, you'll know what I'm talking about. At one point, Bilbo gets mad and he tries to get all up in, in Gandalf's face and Gandalf just gets huge. I mean, he just grows and says, What are you talking about? Why are you coming up against me? And, and Bilbo just kind of cowers. That's the moment I'm talking about. When was the last time we were like that before God? Lord, you are awesome. And I am nothing. I I am afraid. Folks, it is not unhealthy to on occasion be flat on our face before the Lord because He is so great. And we are so not. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And folks, even in the place of awe, As I shudder before a sovereignty I can't understand, I thank God that He chose me for this time and this place and this purpose. You know, we might not understand God's plan and His will. We might not understand the world in which we live. And even today, as I was listening to commentators and listening to people rail on evangelical Christianity, I thought, but you know what, I still don't have it too bad. Tonight I get to go be with brothers and sisters. We get to open the Word together. Without malice, without problems. We get to worship tonight. I get to see my wife and my kids. I live in a country that at least for now gives me the freedom to do so. Look at what we have. I don't understand everything that God has done, but I thank Him for what He's done in my life. And I thank Him that I get to be a part of His plan. We are so, so blessed. And so Pharaoh was raised up to be a hard heart against whom the power of the Lord would be revealed. Now hang with me about five more minutes. We're going to finish out this chapter, verse 18. Behold, 
About this time tomorrow I will send a very heavy hail, such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. I want you to notice that wording, because it's almost word for word what Jesus says in Matthew 24-21 about the tribulation. Such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. And Jesus says there will be a great tribulation. Such as, has, such as not has occurred since the beginning of time all the way up until now, nor ever will. The wording is strikingly similar there. But reading on verse 19, Now therefore sin, bring your livestock, note this guys, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field, bring it to safety. Every man and beast that is found in the field and is not brought home when the hail comes down on them will die. Is this mercy or what? I'm going to send a severe plague. Hail like you've never seen. But I'm going to tell you how to survive it. Get inside. Get your livestock inside. For if you are outside when this hits, you will be laid, laid waste. Leading on, he says, The one among the servants of the Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. But he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. This should make us sit up and take notice. What's the difference between those who are going to get wiped out by this plague of hailstones and those who don't? The difference is those who heard the word and acted on it. If you hear the word of the Lord and act on it, that's where your preservation comes from. Gang, the biggest hailstorm on record in America yielded two pound hailstones. Big suckers. But in Revelation 16.21, we're told that hailstones in the tribulation will weigh in at 100 pounds. Massive. But this was simple. God said if you're outside, you're flattened. If you're out there when this comes down, you're going to be in trouble. People cannot figure out in the world today why their lives are going wrong. Why they can't seem to get on the right track. Why the houses they build on the sand get washed away. You know the story, Matthew 7, 24 through 27. You know probably the little old song, The wise man built his house upon the rock. Remember that? Sang it in Sunday school, the wise man built. And the foolish man built his house upon the sand, and the rain came tumbling down. The rain came down with blood. I won't do the whole song for you. Maybe Sunday morning we'll do it during worship. But the story is amazing. Jesus tells this famous parable. A wise man built his house on the, sand, on the rock, a foolish man on the sand. The rain comes, wipes out the foolish man's house while the wise man's house stands. And what is the difference between the two men? Jesus says the wise man heard and acted on the words of Christ. That's the difference. Anyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, he says... It's like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And what is God saying here in Egypt? He's saying, listen to the word and get into the house. Hear my word. And if you hear my word and act on it, you will be saved. Get into what house, Lord? Get into the household of God. Listen to the word and get into his house. 1 Timothy 3.15 Paul says, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And listen, this is great news tonight. Even if all hail is breaking loose outside, you're in the household of God. You're hearing the word and acting on it. You are in the house. And we are together blessed by the Spirit, by the Lord, for being here. Verse 22. 
Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, that the hail may fall on the land of Egypt, on man and on beast, and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky. And the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. And so there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Now a quick note on the fire. Some say this may have been lightning, fire running down to the earth. I'm thinking, goodness gracious, great balls of fire is what we're talking about here. I think what we're noticing, what we're seeing here is a meteor shower where meteorites themselves are coming down. It looks like hail, but it's burning hail. It's on fire. And where are we? Where, oh, I lost my place here. Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 4. Ezekiel 1.4 tells us, As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around it, and in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of fire. The hailstones, the fire coming down, a meteor shower on Egypt. Well, verse 25 going on, The hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast, that is, man and beast who did not heed and act on the word of the Lord. And the hail also struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree of the field. That has to be intense, to shatter a tree. Only in the land of Goshen, where the sons of Israel were, there was no hail. Again, the distinction is clear. God's people and the world. Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. <laughs> this time? <laughs> The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people oh, were the wicked ones. Make supplication to the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And Moses said to him, As soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be hail no longer, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Look at this about Moses. Something else that progressively happens during the plagues. First three plagues... Aaron stretches out the staff and speaks. In the second three plagues, Moses begins to speak. And in the last three, he takes on a power that is pretty awesome. Moses walks out of, out of Pharaoh's presence into the land. The hailstone is falling, but not on this man. That's awesome. That is power. I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, as a people of God, we're all protected over here. But for Moses to walk out in the middle of the hail and not be killed himself... What do you think the Egyptians thought of that? Moses is accepting the mantle that God has placed on his shoulders. But look at what he says in verse 30. As for you and your servants, I know, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. And I have to ask this question. If God knows that Pharaoh will harden his heart again, why does he let him off the hook again? Why does he stop the plague of the hail? He knows he's not going to let the people go. And with every single plague, God knows he's not going to let them go. We're going to have to drive all the way down to the tenth plague before he will let the people go. The Lord knows this. Why does he keep letting them off the hook and then coming back with another plague? And we land right back where we started tonight, and that's with repentance. Because God is providing for Pharaoh and Egypt every step along the way, opportunity to depart early. To hop out. To repent. To say, I truly am wrong and you are God. Let the people go. It's time to turn. And even after all this, 
Our merciful God continues to provide for opportunity for Pharaoh to repent, turn back to him, and allow the people to go. But Pharaoh will fail to do so again. Verse 31. Now the flax and the barley were ruined. For the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not ruined, for they ripened late. What's all that about? Well, it's just, again, the specificity with which the Bible is written. It's very clear. It's very pointed. It doesn't miss anything here. Verse 33. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. Again, this is just powerful. He's outside the city, his hands are spread out, and the thunder and hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured on the earth. Remember when Jesus did that? Down in the hold of the boat? And the apostles are freaking out because the boat's going to capsize, and they wake him up? He's sleeping. I think that just cracks me up. In the middle of the storm, he's having a nice little cat nap. He's fine. He's got no worry. They wake him up. Lord, we're going to drown. We're about to capsize. And he comes out and says, peace, be still. Glass. And the apostles, verily, verily, they were freaking out. And they saw Jesus there in a way they had never seen him before. Who is this that even commands the winds and the waves? And they still... Who is this man, Moses, who just walked outside of our city and spread out his arms and stopped the plague? Powerful. But, when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again. That's what I said before. He gets relief. Relief is not what he needs. Redemption is what he needs. And the only way there is repentance. He sinned again and hardened his heart. He and his servants. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he did not let the sons of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. And this is the tragedy of history, folks. That time and time again, given every opportunity to repent, to depart early, many will refuse to the very end. God does not judge unfairly. He gives us complete and full opportunity to repent and to turn to Him. And I leave you with this word tonight. If you have friends and family who have not done so, who have not turned to the Lord, God continues to give us every opportunity May you and I be used by the Lord to reach those who have yet to turn. Father, we need your help with this because we know, we know, Lord, we're unskilled in speech. But Father, we see something here in Moses that's amazing. We see how you have completely taken over his life and how he is just growing in immense stature. He is becoming more impressive. And Lord, as the story continues, we understand He will become more impressive still. As He relates to you, as He listens to you, and as He is in your word, Father, following you, Moses becomes just amazing like no other prophet in the history of Israel. But Father, will you remind us, frail individual ones here, remind us that we're no different than Moses. He was just a guy like we are. Just a person. But he led your people out because he listened to your word. And so, Father, I pray this specific prayer for these people gathered tonight, for all of us, Father, that you will increase our stature as we hunger after you. That you will fill us so full of your word and so full of your Holy Spirit, Lord. That as we walk in this world, we cannot help but to impress people, not with ourselves and not with our abilities, Father, but with, with your grace and your love 
and the obvious power that comes with one who simply follows you. Father, I pray that you would wield this power in our lives with our family members, fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and children, Father. I pray that you would wield this power in our lives with with our friends, those with whom we interact every day. That they might see in us that distinct difference. That they might experience, Lord, the power of one who is simply walking humbly before his or her God. Father, as Satan ratchets up the persecution in this world, may we dig deeper into your word and become even more intense as your children fighting for the lives of those around us. God, thank you for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.